Each of us has a unique career story to tell. For some, these fly high like rocket launches. For others, they're more like the game of shoots and ladders with advances and setbacks along the way. Either way, we learn countless lessons from these experiences. And that's what we put into the spotlight here at Career Sessions Career Lessons. Join discussions featuring a variety of guests sharing their stories of ups and downs, as well as the secrets of their success and what drives them to continue moving forward. We break down the tools and resources that will help you establish your dream career and realize your professional goals. Here's your host, J.R. Lowry. I'm J.R. Lowry, and this is Career Sessions, Career Lessons, which is brought to you by Pathwise.io. Pathwise is dedicated to helping you live the career you deserve, providing career coaching, content, courses, and community. Basic membership is free, so visit Pathwise.io online and join today. Today, my guest is Aliza Knox. Aliza is the best-selling author of Don't Quit Your Day Job, Six Mindsets to Rise and Thrive at Work. She is also a tech executive, a senior advisor to the Boston Consulting Group, a speaker and lecturer, contributing columnist at Forbes, and a non-executive director. Aliza began her career at Bankers Trust in New York and then spent a number of years at BCG in Australia before moving to California for roles at Schwab and Visa International. She returned to the Asia-Pacific region in 2007, taking regional leadership roles at Google, Twitter, and Cloudflare. Over time, she shifted into more of a focus on non-executive board roles, including at JBS, Invocare, GFK, Singapore Post, Censure Group, Grant Thornton, Healthway Medical Group, Tyro Payments, Healthmetrics, and Azentio. Aliza was named the IT Woman of the Year in Asia in 2020, the AWA Singapore International Businesswoman of the Year in 2015, and a top 100 women in tech in Singapore. She was also elected to the Chief Executive Women in Australia in 2016. Aliza earned her bachelor's degree in applied math and economics from Brown University and her MBA from New York University. She and her family live in Singapore. Aliza, welcome. It's good to have you on the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. So you've done a lot of different things over the years, and I'm hoping we'll have time to get to as many of them as possible. But let's start with the mix of things that are keeping you busy today. Right now, I'm trying to have a portfolio career, which is what I believe people call it. I sit on four boards. I do a fair amount of mentoring. A lot of, I would call it coffee mentoring, where people call me for help. And we can come back to that later, but that's part of the reason I wrote the book. Yeah. But I have two very serious commitments, one to a young Australian Olympian through a group in Australia called Minerva, where a group of businesswomen got together and realized that we really cheer on the Australian athletes. And then at the end of their athletic career, many of them so solely focused on their athleticism or their sport that they don't have anything to do when they finish. And it is more common for men to end up as broadcasters or sometimes financial salespeople. And so this is a way of these women while they're still in their athletic career so that they have something afterwards. And then through the Asian University for Women, a number of years ago, I was mentoring girls at the University, Asian University for Women in Chittagong in Bangladesh, which tries to help marginalized and impoverished women get to university. And the last mentee that I had is Afghan. And Hmm. she was sent back to Kabul after graduation. And so we spent a lot of time and energy. The university did great work getting 
hundred and it's either 148 or 158 women out of Kabul, not all of their graduates, but a significant number. And so I spent a lot of time with her. She is in the U.S. She is seeking asylum, has had her interviews. She is now at Brown University, where I went to school, getting a master's in public health. So it's very exciting. We've got a lot of work to do to try to get her family out. So that's probably a third of my time. I'd say a third boards, a third volunteering, and, and the boards includes a senior advisor to BCG, and then a third, maybe a little bit more time for myself than I used to have. Yeah, it's good that you were able to help help that young Afghan woman and that she was able to get out of Afghanistan, given everything that's going on there and all the rights of women that are being removed steadily, including yeah. just last week with the elimination of their ability to work in NGOs. It's a tough environment there for sure. It's very tough. Her sister's still there. Her family's still there. So we're working mm-hmm. on dealing with that. But yes, it's, and they're out of the news these days, which is unfortunate. Mostly yeah, out of the news. Mostly out of the news. Yeah. You mentioned some of your director roles. You've been a non-executive director, a board member for a long time in a number of different industries over the years. How would you describe the life of a non-executive director? What's your experience been? As a full-time non-executive director, which I guess I'm not full-time, but not working. It's a little bit easier than when you're part-time and still have your executive role. But I guess it's, so for me, it's an interesting experience because I started my life as a consultant at the Boston Consulting Group. And I had a job before that, but I would consider that my first formative part of my career. And in fact, I'll just quickly lay this out. I would say as background, I Having been in software now, I think of my career as a series of software releases. So 1.0 was Boston Consulting Group and Financial Services. 2.0 was tech, Google, Twitter, Cloudflare. And 3.0 is this portfolio career. So having left consulting and gone to operating, which was something I really wanted to try, I thought board work might be somewhere in between. When you're a consultant, hopefully this never happens to you, but it is possible for a client to pay for the work, have it done and throw it out, basically. Ignore everything. When you're an operator, you're actually doing things. So that doesn't happen and all the responsibility is on you. When you're on the board, it's a little bit in between. It's probably closer to consulting because I think boards, the phrase is noses in, fingers out. Hmm. So you really can't do anything. You can only ask questions and recommend, but it's a little more active than a consultant in that you're there over a long period of time you're getting to know the business and you are able to ask questions and make suggestions. So I just thought I wanted to see what that would be like. And I did start about 12 years ago while I was still an executive. And I think the reason a lot of people do it after their executive careers is they get to a point where they say, I don't want to be full-time anymore. I don't want to be a nine to five or eight to six or a hundred hour a week executive, but I really want to keep my brain going. And I have some contributions I can make based on my experience. And most times boards are looking for a specific kind of experience or expertise when they ask an executive or former executive to be on the board. And so I think that's what being on the board is about. Main responsibility is to hire and fire the CEO. And then there's a lot of regulatory and governance responsibilities, but you are participating and helping guide the company over time. Yeah. And certainly with your tech background, companies, boards are just desperate for people with legitimate tech expertise. So I'm sure that's been a big draw for you and a big help to you 
in terms of what you've been able to contribute? It's interesting. I often remind people that I am not a technologist. So while I've been at tech companies, yeah. the part of tech that I can add is how they move quickly, why they do some of the things they do, and how to scale. What I can't add is beyond the very basic tech stack, what do you do next? Yeah. So I'm not an expert in Kubernetes or edge computing. And it is interesting because when you get calls for board seats or when I do, sometimes I do need to remind people yeah. that what my limits are, what my expertise is and is not. You've served on boards in four or five countries, remembering from your background. Is the way that a board functions different in different countries? So I've been on boards in UK, Germany, Australia, and Singapore. So it's four mm. countries. I think the way the board boards operate is actually a little bit more dependent on the chairman than anything else. But in Germany, and whether the board is private or public, those are probably two bigger differentiators than country. But of course, the country ha is an element in two ways. So one, in Germany specifically, they have a two-tier board. They have a supervisory board and an executive or management board. So independent directors like me are on the supervisory board and they have final power over the management board. But the German law does give powers to the executive board and it's stronger and different than the way it works in other countries. Then I also think style comes from the country. So in many parts of Asia, a lot of, and it's not just Asia, but you would see that many companies are still family controlled or run or right. influenced. And those might have a different style than one where it's a fully independent board. So those are a few factors where you see differences. Yeah. A lot of people do board roles later in their career. You got involved in this relatively early compared to most people. How did you get those first few board roles? It wasn't that early, but I guess the way to get board roles, and I think a lot of people are getting board roles earlier now, and they mm -hmm. should, because it just you don't need to be 50 or 60 to add value, which yeah. I think used to be the thinking. The way I got it was first serving on a volunteer board, a nonprofit in San Francisco, but I didn't do that as a stepping stone to get on corporate boards. I just wanted to volunteer for this nonprofit, which helps people who are out of work or otherwise marginalized to get retrained to, to get jobs. There's a lot of debate in the board community as to whether serving on a nonprofit makes any difference or not when you get yeah. your first board role. So I have no idea. In my case, I happened to have done it. And in on my first board, the chairman did call the chairman of the nonprofit that I had served on to ask about my board contributions. But there are plenty of people who do not do nonprofit boards first. So I think that's really a matter of, is there a nonprofit you're interested in? Is this something you want to learn about? Yeah. Then I think the second thing I did was go and tell people I wanted to be on boards. I have a very good friend who's went on boards earlier than I did, been a very successful board member. And I said to her, I don't think I'm going to be able to go on boards and she was like, why not? And I said, no one's asking me. And she was like, yeah, have you told anybody you want to be on a board? And I felt pretty dumb. But I guess I had this vision in my mind that you work as an executive, generally a CEO, you retire and people call you to go on boards. And that definitely still happens. CEOs retire and they get called to go on boards. But plenty of people who are not CEOs like me, the most I've done is run Asia for a number of companies, are eligible for boards 
And so you can show that you've had a very big executive job, even though it wasn't C-suite. And it's interesting because the roles I've had, many of them are much larger than CEO roles in smaller companies. It's not C. So you, you need to have a narrative. But what I was always told was you need in a, in a job interview or pitch, you need to have an elevator pitch, something you can say quickly to the hiring manager about who you are and what you do. In boards, you need to have three bullet points in terms of the value you add. Not even a, not, you're not even allowed a few sentences. So in my case, it's APAC, tech, and SaaS. But again, having to clarify after the dot points that tech is not a technologist, but tech companies. And so those are the three areas I really know. And of course, I'm a woman. So at some points up and down, there's been efforts to get women on boards. And you then need to go and tell people you want to be on boards. I do think that networks still work to some extent. Sometimes when we're looking for new board members, people say to the board, is there anyone you know? And if people who are on those boards where they're looking, you might get asked. But more and more searches are going to executive search firms. I'm not sure how many I've heard in the maybe one third to 40%. And in those searches, having told an executive search firm that you're interested in a board will help and getting on their list. So you need to go out and pound the pavement with the exec search firms and tell them, hey, I'm looking for board roles and here are the three things that I bring. And then I think... A question that is often asked is, have you ever been on a board? Which is very frustrating when you're going for your first board, because of Of course course you haven't been on a board. But once you crack that, that helps a lot. They want to know that you have board experience, that you understand how a board works and how to behave on a board. You were doing this at least initially while you were still in an executive role, which not everybody gets the chance to do. How did being a board member help you be a better executive? And how did being an executive help make you a better board member when you were overlapping? Yeah, that's a good question. And I'm not positive it did. I'll give a shot at it. But one thing to note is, yeah, I was able to go on boards as an exec, but I had to get permission, right? I did have to ask the company. The first place I did that was Google, and I had to go through legal to make sure there was no conflict and it wasn't absorbing time. And the agreement was always that if anyone felt it was affecting my executive performance, I would resign from the boards. I think as a board member, it helped me think about some questions to ask. Although, frankly, I think a lot of my ability to ask questions and parse problems came from my consulting career. As an executive, it more gave me insight into how little the board knows about what's going on in a company. Yeah. And that makes it a bit scary to be a board member, frankly. You spend a lot of time reading board papers and in board meetings, but I'm very cognizant of how little we know about actually day-to-day operations, how people feel in the company, the culture. We can ask questions, but the reality is we don't, as a board there's a lot we don't know. And the bigger the company, the more complicated the company, the less it's just not possible as a board member. And so that's what makes it a little bit scary in the sense that you are responsible for the company with limited information. Yeah. And it's impractical to think that you are going to be able to put in the amount of time that would be required to really understand more of the day-to-day, even if, if the company's management were comfortable giving the board that kind of access, which isn't always the case. Yeah, I think sometimes you run into problems where management is maybe managing the board a fair amount, but it's not like I feel that I don't have access to information. But even when you're an exec in a company, you only know about your role and what's going on. Mm. CEOs don't know everything. And But as an exec, unless you 
do something, but you're not actually personally and financially liable. Whereas as a board member, you are. Yeah. So it's a daunting task. And I think that's why you see many people deciding not to go on boards anymore. It's certainly the, I think in the sort of post Enron WorldCom era, really over the last 20 years, the regulatory expectations of board members, the legal expectations have certainly risen a lot relative to what it was like before that time. In most cases, there's directors and officers insurance, DNO, but right. it's still a big responsibility. Yeah. And in it, there are limits, obviously, to what that will and won't cover too. Yeah. Not that I am a lawyer, which I will never profess to be. Let's change topics and talk a little bit about your book. Don't quit your day jobs. You hinted at the impetus for writing the book a little bit ago. How did it all really come together? And how did you and your co-author, Wendy Paris, join up for this? Yeah. Thanks for asking about the book. I did do have it behind me so people can look at it. So Wendy is actually a ghostwriter. She helped me write because I had this idea and I didn't think that I could write it myself. I would never finish. Yeah. And, but she's not a ghostwriter because I put her name on the book because why not? It, it's great for both of us. So I found her through a journalist who was in a writer's group with her. Mm-hmm. And we wrote together based on my ideas and her better writing ability and certainly better. It's really interesting. I spent all these years in consulting, structuring communication, but I really did need some help to structure this. So the impetus is or was that I do spend a lot of time talking to people about their careers. I think because I'm older, I'm a woman, I've been in tech, I've been in sales, a little less common. I have friends coming to me. I have younger people and even my age people that I've met over the years at work coming to me. And now I have my friends' kids and my kids' friends. I've got kids in their young early 20s coming to me for help. And so When I sit with them and talk about issues in their careers or things that they're facing, I realize a couple things. One, there's a lot of commonality. Two, if there's nothing else you learn from being in tech, it's that you have to scale and having Mm. coffee with people is not scalable. It's not scalable because there's only 24 hours a day and I don't want to spend it all mentoring. And it's not scalable because I don't really like coffee. I drink very weak decaf latte. I've learned to do that over the years to to have coffee, but it's not. So I just can't, I can't do that all the time. So I thought maybe I could think about the stories I'm hearing, the people I'm talking to, the commonalities and write them down. And again, that was where Wendy helped, where I blurted out all these ideas and issues and she helped me make them coalesce into these six mind shifts. And now when people call for help, and I still spend a lot of time doing this, but I do ask, have you read the book or can you read the book first and see if it gives you any ideas? So one of the mindsets that you talk about in the book, I think it's the very first one is, actually, it's not the first one. I'm going to start that question again. So one of the mindsets that you talk about in the book is that you are in a relationship with your career. Talk a little bit more about that. Sure. I think you're in a career for a long time, unless you find a way that you don't need to work anymore. Mm. And which does happen. Get lucky in a tech stock, maybe you inherit money, maybe you know, you're you partner with somebody else and you decide you're the one who's not going to work, but otherwise many of us are in a career for a long time. I've been married for just 30 years now, just hit 30 and uh, I've worked for longer than I've been married. So that's mm. a really long time. And so I think people need to think about it as something that grows and morphs over time like a relationship with a partner. And I think many people have read, whether it's in glossy magazines or self-help books or very serious podcasts or 
articles that you really can't expect everything that you to get everything you need from one other person that puts too much pressure on a relationship right mm-hmm. and there are lots of reasons for that and so similarly i think we need to think about our careers that way somehow we went and it made a lot of sense from i guess the industrial revolution where we worked just to have an income and pay rent and pay for food to a career should be fulfilling and rewarding and you should learn from it and then it and then we were many of us fortunate enough to work for companies that have a mission and a purpose and many companies try to have that now and then i think we got to some point and maybe for many people still are that a career should fulfill your passions and i think that may be possible for some people it really may maybe there is a career that is just everything they've ever wanted to do but for a lot of people i don't think it is you can get a lot out of your career you can get constant learning you can get social interaction you can get the reward of feeling you've fulfilled some tasks but you can't get everything and maybe you need to do some things on the outside. We talk about a career as a ladder that you climb and it's just it's not an object it changes but it probably still can't give you everything and maybe that's too high a bar. Yeah. And yeah, I talk a lot about what can you get out of your career and maybe ways to get things that you want outside your career. For example, she's not in the book but I'm friends with a professor who's an avid equestrian and I don't know how many careers there are as a horse person. Are you probably there are a number of careers in terms of working with race horses or working in stables. I'm a little frightened of horses. I don't know, but I'm sure there yeah. are some careers, but I'm also pretty sure that there aren't as many as there are people who like riding horses because I know a lot of the latter. And right. so this person is a professor. She's an economics professor. She's really good at it. She loves her job. She really enjoys engaging with the students. She's great at her research. She's written a couple books, but she is passionate about horses. So her career does not directly fulfill her passion, but what it does is gives her enough income to have horses and it gives her flexible timing. This may be less of an issue now that we've gone to more hybrid work for a lot of people, but she's closer to my age and so what it did over the years was give her long winter breaks and long summer breaks to be where her horses are. And so she has this relationship with her career where she's got all these things she likes out of her career, but it doesn't fulfill all her passions and it enables her to fulfill her passions. Yeah, and look, the equation is different for everybody, right? You talk about that in the book. You make the related point that work and life are on the same team. I think a lot of people look at work and feel like they're at war with work, right? And they don't necessarily find the ways that it does give them fulfillment. And then that puts a lot of pressure on their home life because then life has to make up for everything that you feel like you're not getting in in the many hours that you spend at work. It's tough unless you come to this point of acceptance on all of it. Yeah, it's interesting. There's been a lot of discussion about quiet quitting, right? The quiet quitting descriptions seem to range from I'm just going to do what's required and not much more and I'm going to try to have more time to do the things I like. And I think that's fine. To I'm just going to mail it in. I'm like going to do the bare bare minimum and disengage as much as possible and to me that sounds soul destroying. Yeah. And of course, I'm mostly talking about people who have I guess primarily white collar careers who right. have some options. I don't know if much of this is relevant if you have no choice and are in a career or a 
job or repetitive task that you hate, right? I'm talking mm-hmm. about in all of this, I'm talking about people with some degree of optionality. But I think if you're at a an office type job that where you're just, as I said, mailing it in or doing the bare minimum, to me, that sounds soul destroying. I think you can eke that out for weeks or months or maybe a year Yeah. if you need to financially while you look for something else. But the idea of wanting to do that to me, sounds really tough. It sounds tougher than making the effort to find something you want to do because it's it sounds good and it sounds rebellious and great on social media, but you're actually yeah. still spending whatever it is, those hours a day having yeah. to do something that you hate. And I think there are a lot of choices out there. And the idea of spending a lot of time, every job has the bits of it, the administrivia, whatever, or the political parts that you don't like. But I think for most people, they can find something where the balance is that they're engaged and learning in the bulk of it, and they get through the bits they don't like. But the idea of just grinding out hours of stuff you don't like so that you can quietly quit, I don't know. To me, it sounds very upsetting. And I'm hoping that most of the people I talk to can then that would be a time, even though I said, don't quit your day job. It's not right. never quit. It's just a lot of times you don't need to quit to have the life or the career or the job that you want. But if you get to that point where it's soul destroying, I think it's time to go. It's a dark place. I had the same reaction when I first heard the term. It's been called presenteeism and other things in the past, but just can't imagine going to work every day and phoning it in and not losing my mind, as you say, within days or weeks or maybe months. You talk about stamina in the book. That's another one of the mindsets and the importance of building stamina. How does that take root in practice to help you find, I'll say, inner peace with your day job? So I wrote two equations for the book. I'm not sure either one will become as famous as E equals MC squared, but one of them was stamina equals perseverance plus enthusiasm. And so back to this quiet quitting at a certain point, I don't think anything is pleasant if you're just grinding it out. Yeah, There's lots of discussion around sticking with it and having the ability to persevere. And those are important. And grit, Angela Duckworth talks about grit, but and her material is amazing. But I think beyond just hanging in there, there's the ability to do it with some degree of enthusiasm, figuring out what you're going to get out of it, what you're going to learn from it, so that stamina isn't just hanging in there, it's actually enjoying at least part of it. And one example in the book is a woman whose name is Disguised. And there are, I know I'm giving female examples at the moment, but actually the book's about, I think there's about three dozen examples in there and it's about 60% Mm. women, 40% men, uh, all people I know. And just some are disguised, some are not, but they're stories to try to make the ideas relatable for most people so they can see, oh, this is what happened to me or this is what I was thinking about. In any case, Barbara was at a tech firm, not one that I was at, but one that I knew about. And somebody had asked me to talk to her and she said, I've got to quit. And it's really too bad. I've been there a while and I really like it. I'm like, why do you have to quit? They're bringing somebody in over me. I was running sales and now this person's going to be head of sales and it's demeaning. It's demoralizing. I've got to go. 
And the reason I'd been asked to talk to her is I knew the person who was going to be her boss. And I said, I know the person who's coming in over you. And he's a really good guy. And he's Mm -hmm. known for developing people. He's known for how much he puts into his team. He's a great leader. You might want to think about staying and just seeing if you can learn something from him because you can always go. But once you go, it's hard to come back. And just as an aside, it's interesting. I read last year, and so it must be more now, that I had found that at least 5% of people who left during the Great Resignation had gone back to their prior companies. So that must be understated because a lot of people who regretted leaving probably can't go back. Jobs been filled or aren't welcome back. I think it's really important to, and I talk about that a bit in the book, just make sure that when you leave, you're really going to something and not just fleeing. So anyway, so I said to Barbara, you can always leave. Why don't you think about it? And ultimately, I'm sure she talked to more people than me, And but she decided to stay. And she stayed with kind of gusto, if you will. She said, okay, I'm going to see if I can make this work. I'm going to see if I can learn anything from this guy. And she stayed for years. She got two promotions working with this person. She learned a lot. And the second promotion was while she was on maternity leave, which probably shouldn't be worth mentioning, but unfortunately, I think it still is. And now she is a CRO, a chief revenue officer at another well-funded startup, something that would have gone public but isn't now, or would have gone public probably in the last year, except for in the state of the market. I think it will wait. And my view is that if she had left when she first talked about leaving, she would have continued to be head of sales at smaller companies. She was at a company that had been, I guess, when she got there, maybe Series A, small tech company on a rocket ship, but not big yet. She had learned a lot, but she wasn't going to learn more because there was nobody to pay attention to her. And by hanging around when this when she was layered over and having some stamina to stick with it, she yeah. actually found that she got a lot out of it, got developed more. And so I think if she hadn't stayed, she would have had continued to have a good career, but in the same type of roles she had before. Whereas in this case, because she learned something and had the stamina to stick it out, she actually is at a higher level than she might have been otherwise. And so I think that's just one example where saying, okay, I'm going to give it a shot. I'm going to hang in there for something I really don't like, and I'm going to do it with enthusiasm or gusto or good attitude. That gets me through some bumps. And sometimes it's going to do something really good for me, which it did in this case. It was a good example. I like the equation as well, that the notion that stamina is perseverance and enthusiasm. It's attitude, which is reflected in the enthusiasm part of the equation is really important. At the same time, it only gets you so far. And you need that perseverance to grit whatever word you want to use to be able to go through invariably whatever those tough times are. You've been in Asia, in the Asia Pacific region for a large part of your career. You talk in the book both about the importance of connection and you say that distant is the new diverse. So I'm curious to hear where you come out on how do you think about the importance of co-location relative to the opportunity that comes from having people from far-flung parts of the world potentially in consideration to be part of your organization? Yeah, this is this is interesting. And I, I think we're all waiting to see where the post-pandemic sort of 
culture falls out? What is the mainstream? I'm a little skeptical on never meeting your colleagues, saying that we're fully remote forever and we don't meet. I Maybe I'm just a Luddite in the social connection arena, but I have found over the years that having the chance to meet people, whether it's chatting in the hallway or meeting once a year at an offsite, helps form a connection, maybe some stories of things that happen, missing a plane together, spilling, somebody spilled wine on me recently, which wasn't great, but there's a story around it. Those things create these stories that you have forever that creates some sort of bond. So the question for me is, can you create those if you never meet? Now, I do think that you can be hybrid most of the time or work from home or work from somewhere most of the time if you get those occasional opportunities to meet. The issue with some of those is that a company has to have enough money to bring you together once in a while if you're really far flung, if you're really all over the world. You look at the big tech companies, they all have global sales conferences, for example, or tech conferences or kickoffs, but those are very expensive to host. I think the important thing is to work on how can you create some interpersonal connection if you never meet the other people. And yeah. I and there are ways to do it. I think one is to create time at the beginning or ending of Zoom to have some small talk. I found during the pandemic that while it was nice to be at home and people were, I think, more productive, although now I've seen studies that saying we're less productive, there was this initial burst where it was like, okay, I'm going to get my work done. And Zooms or whatever, online meetings were scheduled every hour. So what happened in a real life setting where people are late to the meeting and they come in and somebody's eating potato chips or crisps and they share with you and then someone's sneezing and we talk about their cold on Zoom. I noticed you sneezed a minute ago. You just turned it off, quietly sneezed. No one's, there's none of that conversation. And so you have to make it. I think in places where I've seen a lot of places where people are working from home, but they're actually in the same city or even the same part of the city. And in those, I would encourage them to at least once in a while go for a walk together. It doesn't have to be coffee. Have a walking meeting where you can be outside, enjoy nature if it's not the dead of winter and have your meeting that way. So I'm a little skeptical. I've definitely seen, for example, in law, accounting, consulting, which I would consider apprenticeship careers. Yeah. The younger people are struggling. I have a good friend who runs a major law firm and they've noticed that they feel that the pandemic has basically, they've lost a generation of lawyers because Mm. a young lawyer might stop somebody in the hallway and say, hey, JR, can you just look at this and see, does that sentence look okay? They would do that, but they wouldn't feel emboldened to email you or go into your calendar and ask for JR, the partner, can you spend 10 minutes with me to ask you about this sentence? And by the same token, the partner might not think to say to me, they might walk by me in the hallway and go, hey, Elise, I'm going to this interesting meeting. Do you have an hour? Come with me. But they probably wouldn't do if it was on Zoom. And so all that sort of, it's not osmosis, but it's closer to osmosis than planned, hasn't been happening. And those kinds of firms have had higher churn rates. They're losing more people, which is expensive for them. And they have more people who are dissatisfied or who aren't succeeding. So I think we're still figuring this out in terms of how do we make hybrid work. I think in firms where the tasks are very clear, 
So maybe in some tech firms where a developer has a very clear goal and can work with a team in an organized, there's a lot of platforms to do that organized way that might work better. I have a good friend running a gaming company with very far flung developers, and that seems to be working, but it is reasonably small still. So while I say distance is the new diverse, I don't mean when I meant when I talked about that, I didn't necessarily mean everybody was far flung. I do think we talk about diversity. We used to talk about it as gender only then become ethnic makeup. I think age is important, but I do think where you're from is important. You talked about all these countries where I've been on boards and I think distance, having lived overseas, having been somewhere else is a bit of diversity too. And I do think having a corporation where not everybody or firm, not everybody sits in exactly the same place does build diversity and distance is good, but somehow we need to bridge those bridge the the gaps that the distance also creates. And when I was head of Asia for all these firms, I always said for those roles that I needed to go to headquarters four times a year to at least meet with the people I was interacting with or other key regions like the maybe the EMEA region, the Europe region for me to get to know them so that when I needed help or when I was trying to understand something that they were doing that was successful, I could reach out and ask them in an informal way. Yeah. And it's especially important. You've spent, as I mentioned, and you've mentioned a lot of time in the Asia Pacific region. It's a long way away from the rest of the world and many time zones away. So it's helpful to have those points where where you do get to have that in-person interaction. I want to shift a little bit and talk about some of the formative moments in your career. I know you started in finance when you first moved to New York after graduating from Brown, but you said earlier that you really view consulting as maybe the official start of your career How is that so? What did you take away from your time at BCG that's helped you in the years since then? I think I mentioned this a bit talking about boards, but what consulting teaches you or what it taught me was how to communicate clearly and how to start with the conclusion and then explain it, which was anathema after coming out of at least my education was still, we were writing term papers. So you write all this stuff and then there's the aha at the end. And consulting really teaches you, you better get the aha at the beginning and then be very clear in the explanation for why. I think it taught me a lot about how to pick apart problems and figure out parts of the solution, put it back together. It taught me a lot about building client relationships, about trying to understand what was going on in companies. But to be honest, it's pretty hard to really understand the companies until you're inside one. So that's one of the transition things that people talk about a lot when they leave consulting to go to operating or to go inside a firm is how much more empathy they end up developing for the client. You're a consultant and you're like, can I get these numbers uh, tomorrow? Just print off these or help me analyze these or put these into a pivot table. And the client says, I can't, or I don't have this. And you're a young consultant and you think, are they lazy or they don't want to do it? Or, and actually, once you've been inside, you're saying, oh, you think the company should have those numbers, but actually their systems don't produce it very easily or it will take five days. And somehow... Until you're inside, you don't fully get it. I think consulting does teach you a lot about building the relationships, about really looking hard for solutions, about parsing problems and about communicating and about analysis. I can remember one funny story from my time at McKinsey. One of my colleagues asked for some big data query for one of the regional Bell phone companies. And the query was so big that it it took down the, the network IT systems for a brief period of time. And he got just crushed by everybody in terms of just the ribbing he took over that one. And uh, from the client and the McKinsey people alike, we were very good at asking for big, complicated queries that uh, weren't always easy to execute. Exactly. 
Exactly. Yeah. What was your shift like when you moved into an operating role? A lot of consultants struggle with that transition into getting into the flow and the, the longer term time horizons that come with it. What was it like for you? It was a little bit challenging, right? But it was also really eye-opening, as I said, because you get more empathy. I enjoyed it because I was always at the end. I presume McKinsey had this too, but I felt like at BCG, there was a broad spectrum of partners ranging from people who were unbelievable intellects and came up with all the amazing new ideas to people who were a little more practical like me. I don't know that I came up with anything that anybody had never thought of before, like the experience curve or three centers, Mm -hmm. but I was really good at saying, Hey, that idea is going to work for this client. And that idea is going to work over here. And so I loved the ability of being able to be an executive and implement things. So instead of saying to somebody, Hey, why don't you try this? I could say, hey, let's try this. And of course, consulting firms do more implementation now than they did when I was there and probably when mm-hmm. you were there. Yes. But even you're not in the firm. So when you're an operating executive, you have to agree with lots of people across the firm. I've always been in matrix organizations. I've never been able to just say, we're doing this, and then the whole firm jumps to it. But you have much more ability to execute directly. And so that was really fun. And I really liked it. And I'm In my case, I did not find the adjustment too hard. I think one thing that's always challenging is that consulting brings together a certain type of person who is really generally driven and likes analysis. And in a different kind of firm, you might have a broader range of people and you need to figure out how to motivate them. They're not all motivated necessarily by the same thing. And so that was, but it was all great learning. And that's what I loved about it was just really different type of career. Yeah. To me, one of the big differences you hit on it a a minute ago is in a consulting firm, you've got this group of incredibly self-motivated individuals, right? Highly capable, self-motivated. And then you go into a company. And as you say, it's a mix, right? You have some people who are phenomenal. Then you have some people who are less than phenomenal and you've got to figure out a way to get more out of all of them, right? And in a consulting firm, you would just exit the people who didn't pan out. There was a sort of expected churn and most companies, those people end up oftentimes being around a lot longer. And it just, it's a very different thing to have to motivate people who need, who need that motivation than it was easy in a way in the consulting firm. But the interesting thing, as you just said, some of those people stick around, they are actually the foundation of those companies, right? You need some people who aren't always, again, I think when we were both there, consulting was up or out. And I think it's still pretty close to that. Yes. So everybody wants to go up, but you need some people who say they've made some other decisions in life. I don't need to be the rock star. I want to just be solid. I like my job. I'm going to do this. And I think learning to really appreciate that, understand how important their roles are in those firms. And as you said, for some people who maybe, and a lot of those people are motivated, they're just not motivated to necessarily be CEO. They just like their job or like their group and want to stay. And then some people aren't as motivated at all. And so uh, there's a lot of learning, I think, as a person on the EQ side too, right? Yeah, absolutely. So you've been a leader in a lot of different situations. How has your leadership style evolved over the years? And in the different situations. Yeah, I wish I need to ask somebody else that. I'm not sure. I hope it has evolved. I think I went to a public high school in California where the most popular, best looking people were women were the cheerleaders. And I was not a cheerleader. I don't, I didn't try out, but I don't think I could have made the cut anyway. And I am not sure if that's why, but I feel like it has made me a cheerleader as a leadership style. I okay. feel I, I really like to try to motivate other people, encourage them, develop them. I think if you ask me the most fulfilling part of my career, 
I obviously like to hit my numbers. I like helping grow companies, but the most fulfilling part of my career has been to help other people develop. A lot of the people in the book are people where who started working for me and have gone quite far. And I think that they would have, they're all super capable. They would have done it without me, but I believe and hope that I may have accelerated their careers. And to me, that's like the most meaningful thing I've done. Yeah. So I guess I describe the leadership as development and cheerleading, to be mm-hmm. honest. I think what's changed over time, I do care a lot about delivering. I, even at this advanced age, still show stress. I know that I do, but I think I showed it much more when I was younger. And I've learned over time to exhibit it less and not have the people around me stressed because I'm stressed to try to drive them through motivation and delivering on goals rather than stress. But it is definitely something I've always worked on. Yeah. One of my earlier interviews with somebody I worked with at State Street who was at one point a volunteer firefighter. And she described that as that's literally life and death. So when you're in a workplace setting, very few things are life and death. And it just helped her to put things in perspective and remain calmer in in all of those circumstances. I'll bet. Maybe I should take that up because I'm still (laughs) working on it. Fair enough. You've talked to multiple points about the mentoring you do. Are you hearing any particular themes from people right now that, that jump out to you as being amplified issues that people are facing other than the sort of return to office hybrid evolution that's going on at the moment? Obviously, that's a big one. I think now specifically people are worried about inflation and being with a company that's long lasting because I have this strong background in tech and tech's having a bit of layoffs. There's a lot Mm -hmm. of specific concern right now, but I still think the pervasive issues are, I want to get some sort of fulfillment out of my career. And I think I when I talked before about the relationship with your career and your life, I do think you should get some fulfillment from your career. Maybe not every passion, but you've got to get some. And really feeling, people want to feel that their company or their manager specifically is invested in them. And I think that's timeless. If you look at, there's a McKinsey study from last year or the year before about why are people leaving? And even during the great resignation, top box, all the ex-consultants know that's the big secret or the big area and higher wages and work flexibility have moved into that right-hand box because of the pandemic and because of inflation. But what has always been there and is still there is I want to have a manager who's developing me or invested in me. And I want a company that recognizes me or realizes what I'm doing. Yeah, And I think those are still really important. And coming back to hybrid, one of the things that I think is tricky is that sometimes the way you feel recognized by a company is by actually seeing some of the top executives who have a chat with you. And so now companies, tech companies do town halls, they do shout outs, but they have to figure more ways to make sure that the employees who aren't seeing them in the hallway or maybe ever are feeling recognized. And that could be with awards that often work for like sales team. It could be with educational investment, but it could be with better healthcare, but there are That is, I think, what people are seeking. They want to be in a career where they think they're learning and where they think the company is not necessarily taking care of them. And that's one of the lessons that I think I impart in these mentoring. I think often younger people come out of college where parents and then maybe professors have been helping them, taking care of them, and they're expecting the company to do the same thing. And I don't think companies do that. Companies take care of their shareholders. And of course, they want to 
take care of people to the extent that they want to grow them and they want them to deliver for the company. But the company is not responsible for Elisa Knox or JR. They're responsible for their shareholders. And trying to explain to young people that they should expect some, but there's also a limit because they need to take care of themselves. And that's where you get back to understanding your relationship with your career. But that's what I hear a lot. Yeah. Last question, mindful of time. So if you could give one bit of advice to your younger self in terms of how to manage your career, what would you go back and give your younger self in terms of that advice? Something I'm really big on that I wrote a lot about in the book that we didn't get a chance to talk about here is building a personal board of directors. So similar Mm. to what we talked about for corporate, as an individual, not necessarily expecting to find one mentor. Some people don't. I think that depends a lot on chemistry and happenstance. Creating sort of a board for yourself of different kinds of people who get to know you over time, who can give you advice. And so I've written a lot about it. You can read it. And if there's, I've written a couple of articles about it too, and I'm not the only person who's written about it. I think that's what I would have given my younger self. I only came to that maybe 10 years ago. And I think it would have helped me a lot in my career. So in some places like BCG, I had amazing mentors who I think really did a lot to pull me up through the firm. But in other companies, I haven't had that. I've had a manager who's invested in me because they hired me, but not really doing anything else. And the board of directors would have helped a lot. I think the other one is it's never as bad as it seems. You go through troughs in your career. It always seems terrible when you're there and life goes on. Personal board of directors and something you can obviously only see with hindsight, but something maybe your board of directors can tell you when you're at your lows is it'll get better. Yeah. Excellent points to stop with. And I'm glad you got a chance to put the personal board of directors point in there before we wrap. This has been great. Obviously we didn't get to everything. It's always tough to do when there's so much that we could cover, but I appreciate your time and it was a really good discussion and look forward to putting it out there for everybody to listen to when it gets published. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me in for a discussion and proving just like with us, distance is a new diversity. We're across the world doing this. I'm in Sydney, you're in Cape Cod. Yep. And it does show that at least for many things, you can cover the distance. So I really appreciate it. It's been great getting to know you. Yeah. Thank you again. To thank Aliza for joining me today to discuss her board work, her book, Don't Quit Your Day Job, some of the highlights from her career journey and what she's learned along the way. If you're ready to take control of your career, visit pathwise.io. If you'd like more regular career insights, you can become a Pathwise member. It's free. You can also sign up on the website for the Pathwise newsletter and follow Pathwise on social media on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Thanks. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to Career Sessions, Career Lessons. We hope the nuggets of wisdom shared today help guide your path to the successful career of your dreams. This podcast series is part of Pathwise.io, which is here to help you live the career you want. We provide a comprehensive mix of career and professional development events, insights, tools, and exercises backed by a group of leading coaches and other career management experts. If you aspire to something more or just something different in your career, join us at Pathwise.io. You can find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. See you again on the next episode.